Hi, my name is Jason Barcham. I'm an associate partner with Servian New Zealand. Welcome to the Technology Whisperers, a technology and innovation podcast brought to you by Servian with your hosts Alistair Ross and Sean Muller. Join us as we demystify the latest emerging innovative technologies for businesses of all shapes and sizes, sharing our thoughts on how you can improve your current technologies, practices and processes to transform your business. Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning, wherever you are in the world. This is the Technology Whisperers, episode 12. I do thank you for joining us today with with hosts, me, Alistair Ross, and co-host here, Sean G. Muller. So thank you very much for listening in wherever you are, again, here on the Technology Whisperers. Today, we've got a fantastic podcast, which Sean has spent quite some time curating. And it talks about a number of topics that we've talked about in the past, previous podcasts and and technology whisperers really brings a lot of that together. So we're talking about cloud today, but you know, we've also talked about technical debt, haven't we, Sean? Yes, we have. I do want to, before we get kicked totally into this session, I do want to apologize for our listeners that listen regularly. The month of June got away from Alistair and I, and Mm. we did not have a episode on July 1st. But if you're listening to this now, Alistair and I are doing everything we can to try and find fit these podcasts into our busy schedule so we make sure we can we can bring these this information to you that we think is valuable. That this particular episode we're going to we're going to focus on something Alistair is exactly right that we touched on both in the technical debt but also in the security podcast. We're going to be talking about migrating to the cloud. Now, whether that's cloud migration or transforming to the cloud or or some mix of those different things. That's what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to go down a level and try and demystify a little bit of the approaches, the different types within those approaches, the seven different options that we have for types of migration. We're going to talk a little bit about the reality is, is that no one size fits all. It it really is a hybrid model. There are going to be some approaches and some some migration types that work for some aspects of your business and some that are have to be done differently for other aspects. And really what that means from a becoming cloud native for how we go into the cloud and decoupling some of the layers of this. Uh, we're going to try and touch on kind of the consumption of data. So we have some we have some ways that we consumed data in the past for our applications, and we have some more modern ways of consuming data and how that impacts that cloud migration. And then we'll talk a little bit about cloud architecture and, and where we we're really going to dive into cloud architecture is not actually the architecture. So I'm not trying to scare anybody off, but there are options and choices and there are decisions that need to be made as part of a cloud migration strategy. And some of those have to do with making choices about the architecture and we'll be touching on security and operations and you know doing things like leveraging existing services within the cloud and when to choose to do that and when not to choose that and then the last is we're going to we're going to touch very lightly on cloud marketplaces because i th- i really think this is probably in the last 2 years has become a really important characteristic of clouds is is that now on the cloud, you can actually buy services from other vendors that have deployed services onto the cloud pre-built for you. And it, it can accelerate a lot of cloud migration strategies. 
Does that sound yeah. like a good plan of attack, Alistair? Yeah, so certainly a lot to get into there. I I would I would say to, obviously to our listeners, you know, we're doing this in the in the usual vein of our approach, which is you know demystifying and debunking all of the I guess uh, the, the the marketing mumbo jumbo buzzwords and breaking them down, but it's just boiling them down into something that makes sense to us normal human beings. And and so throughout this, you you've probably heard podcasts or watched videos or, or read training materials or whatever on the topics that we've covered that we were covering here today and that's quite possible but i think hopefully what you'll get from today's session is that it's cohesive enough to bring all of that there into one place and hopefully gives you this a, a really clear level of understanding so if you've got bits and pieces through you know other podcasts or other videos or whatever in the past, but yet the terminology might still be a bit a bit abstract for you. Then hopefully yeah. what we talk about today can can bring all that together for you. Yeah, it'll put it together. And we're gonna we're going to touch on this. We're gonna try and help with the language that if you're a technical person and you're working in an IT department that's beginning that cloud transformation, the the language that you use to talk to the business and the executives, but. This is also aimed at a lot of the business and executives, so you have a better understanding of, and, and we'll try and highlight that. That's part of the demystifying that we bring to this is, is that if the technology teams are coming to you and saying something to you, you need to have at least an understanding enough. And sometimes the myths in the technology and terminology get overblown. And so we're, we're going to try and touch on that. So I think that kind of leads in that first topic, which is, types of cloud migration or how we get onto the cloud. And, and Alistair, I'd like, I want to start with the first one, which is, I would probably say over the last 10 years is probably 80 to 90% of cloud migrations and that's lift and shift. Yeah. Why don't you give us a breakdown of what lift and shift really means? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good place to start. And, you know, I think this one sometimes, depending on who you speak to, but usually the sort of seasoned cloud experts out there, this sends a shiver down their spines. But look, I think there is there is that case, you know, that's or the cloud snobs out there. But the reality is that you have to get started somewhere. And yeah. having the, you know, your technical debt or or whatever you want to call it, the, the situation where you have all of this technology, which is probably sitting anywhere between a co-location data center that you might have might be a server in your back room with a, with a guy in, with sandals and a beard longer than yours, Sean, but it could be, could be anything. I, I don't right? have sandals on today. I don't No, today. No sandals, just the beard. No, yeah. That's right. But you know, it could be, you know, it could be all, all of these sorts of situations where you really, you have your data in different places. Could it be on the cloud as well? Don't forget that, you know, we've, yeah. we're in 2022 now. And your applications, you might have software as a service applications. You could have things like Salesforce, for example, that classic example there of SaaS. So you've got a whole mishmash probably of data, yep. applications, and infrastructure just sitting somewhere or in probably in multiple places. Yep. So when we're going to the cloud, we have to consider our methodology of migrating to the cloud. And how do you do that? And so this lift and shift is probably the first one that people take on because it's yeah. the easiest to conceptualize. It's basically saying, here is what we have right now. 
in its virtual machine form, probably. A lot of yep. most most organizations moved on from you know server hardware, like direct tin physical hardware, whatever you want to call it, and 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 opted for virtualization at least in the last sort of ten to fifteen years ago. So we've got platforms the, the like ones the ones not running Solaris. <laughs> so we've got VMware, we've got Zen, we've got I guess a few other Hyper V, Hyper V, yeah. yeah, of course, yeah. You know, so we've got all of those sort of platforms out there, and the big cloud operators all have a migration methodology to actually migrate those VMs into basically just VMs in the cloud as well. So you're basically lifting and shifting, and that's yeah. where that terminology comes from. That makes and, sense. and let's. Let's add a couple of terms. So on the business side, oftentimes what you hear or, or what gets said to the technology teams is, give me like for like, or can, can't we just keep doing what we're doing, but put it on cloud infrastructure instead of our infrastructure? Oftentimes what we hear from a project perspective is, oh, no, 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 we're just going to infrastructure as a service. We're, we're not, we're not going to do the cloud thing. We're just going to go to infrastructure as a service. And one of the things I want to highlight here is, is that a lift and shift and then transforming once you're in the cloud is not automatically the wrong strategy, but it's a, it, it can't be your only strategy. Oftentimes organizations that say, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to assess any of our kit. We're not going to look at our existing applications. What we're going to do is we're going to lift and shift because, and oftentimes the second statement is because this is going to save us money. And here we come to one of these demything de things. Lifting and shifting to the cloud is not going to save you money. Even from a total cost of ownership, it's not going to save you money. Now, it will make processes better. You will get security patching, infrastructure patching will happen right away, but you're going to pay for that on a monthly charge that is going to be a about equivalent to what it is for you to either lease your own hardware or even to buy your own hardware every five years. Mm. Yeah. And it's important to add to that point as well, that if you are just moving, if you're just lifting and shifting and not transforming, you're not doing anything other than taking a VM from your current data center, sticking it into the cloud. So AWS, Azure, or GCP, Google Cloud Platform. If you're doing, if you're moving it to one of those three, and you're just simply leaving it as is, then you're not going to reap the benefits of no. cloud optimization. And we'll come on to that in a moment, but just yeah. quickly speaking, those sorts of things that you briefly touched on there, Sean, like automated patching, I mean, there will be some level of automation, but when we're talking about your VM, what you've got on your own VM, if you're just doing like for like, all of the patching of the operating system, for example, that's not going to be touched. That's not going to be done. So you're still going to have to have all of the overhead that your organization has to this date for doing that level of maintenance. So, I mean, if, you, if you've if you got like a, you know, well, Microsoft come out with Patch Tuesday, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. And in your organization, you've probably got an IT department or an IT security department, which deals with Patch Tuesday and ideally will update servers, Windows servers, with a patch if it deems it necessary to roll that out. Now, what is possible with the cloud is to take the, the power of the cloud and the managed services of the cloud to have some of these things done for you so that you don't have to pay or deal with your, your engineer's time, your, your IT staff's time to do those things when the, the low hanging fruit, the easy patches and stuff like that could really be done 
for you, or at least with minimum yep. effort. So uh, yeah, so just be aware that when you're doing this lift and shift and nothing else, all of those, almost all of those benefits of the cloud, the optimizations you get will not be applicable. Now, now remember, and, and to highlight what Alistair and I are saying is, is that if a consultant comes into you and tells you, you cannot do lift and shift of any of your, of anything you have into the cloud, then they're, they're not necessarily taking the best approach. You need to do an analysis work to identify which things it makes sense to do a lift and shift into the cloud and which things it it makes sense to transform or redevelop. And so that kind of leads into our second migration type, which is transforming and then migrating to the cloud or, or as part of the transformation migrating to the cloud. If someone, if a consultant comes in and begins talking to you about this, they're gonna say things like, we're gonna make your applications cloud ready, or we're gonna make your data sets or databases cloud ready, or your business processes cloud ready. The language they're using is, is they're talking about a multi-year project to get your applications and business processes ready to go onto the cloud. Now, that might be perfect for your business. That might be the direction you want to go for your business. But if you're not aware that that's what you're getting into, if you're at a point where the contract for your data center is about to run out, a transformation and move to the cloud is not a good approach because it does have this long tail. And, and the long tail is often the people that use the existing applications don't want to get off of them. And I have been in several projects in Alistair, I know you have as well, where we've literally transformed an entire application, redeveloped an entire application to be cloud ready. And there's one person, sometimes the CFO, sometimes the GM of IT is still using the old application and because they're important enough in the business and they don't want to use the new one, you can't move that application because it all and all of the data lives within a tightly coupled monolithic solution that isn't isn't designed to run and take advantage of the cloud. So understand that it can be a mix of these things. And part of being ready to go to the cloud, you're going to hear terms of like, well, you need to have a cloud center of excellence. You need to have, you know, an entire cloud architecture team. You need to have cloud consultants come in and help you do these things. Depends on the, the landscape that you have and how complicated and interrelated all those systems are. If you have a large monolithic application that 99% of your business processes run on, then yes, it's probably a good idea to look at a cloud center of excellence or bring some cloud consultants in because you're going to have to peel those business processes out of that monolithic application because you can't take a monolithic system and transform it to the cloud. It's going to have to be decoupled and the systems are going to have to be pulled a little bit apart. The last migration type, and this one is less so a migration type than a true transformation type, and that's redeveloping those applications specifically to build them onto the cloud. Oftentimes what we see with this is, is that we've migrated the data to the cloud, but we're still using these larger, tightly coupled applications, oftentimes on-prem or in a hosted data center. Now we need to redevelop those applications to be cloud native, to take advantage of the cloud services, to, to Alistair's point, to the patching services that the cloud offers, the security services and operation services that the cloud offers, and even the availability numbers, to truly take advantage of the availability numbers. And then this is my favorite one. 
and so that the applications turn off when they're not being used. Mm, yeah, that's a very good one. Yeah. Yeah. So we what we see is, is applications that are developed to run your data center, once you've bought the hardware, you've paid for it, and you want all of those applications to be available 24-7, even if nobody's using them and you want, I mean, you've already paid for the hardware, you've already paid for the software development, just run them maxed out the whole time. Once you move to the cloud, you're paying for what you use. So consumption-based model. That's right. So if you have if it if you on Black Friday, if you want your application to scale up to be able to handle 10,000 customers coming in, but that at two o'clock in the afternoon on Christmas Eve, you know that you're not going to have five customers coming online. You want to be able to scale. You don't want to build it for Black Friday. You want it to scale down to the minimum so that when a customer comes on board, you can respond to them, but built so that the system responds and spins up more instances of itself so it can handle Black Friday. And so it spins down and costs you less money. That's cloud native. It's taking advantage of the cloud services to be able to provide you when you need it the processing power and memory and storage to do the things that your business needs to do. Yep, absolutely. So, so all in all, you may have heard of the terminologies of the transformation to cloud. So the approaches, so it depends on which organization you listen to, whether it's Microsoft or Azure, whether you listen to Google for the Google cloud cloud platform, or whether you listen to Amazon for AWS, they all are relatively similar, but the ones that, you know, I guess I'm familiar with the most is AWS's ones, just probably because they've been around a lot longer. They started off, I think, as like five or six, and now there are seven. So I'll just, I'll just rattle them off, shall I, Sean, just so yeah, that yeah, um, yeah, we familiarize yeah. the listener with what those are. Well, and we and can... we've talked about them before. We've yes. talked about them in the tech deck, We're, and we'll go a little bit deeper into them today. But yeah, yeah. Alistair, why don't you give them to us? Sure. Okay, so the seven are rehost, replatform, refactor or rearchitect, repurchase, retire, and finally retain. So let's just uh, let's just start at the top of that list, shall we? And we can we can skip right quickly through the first one, which is rehost, because effectively we've already talked about it. It's yeah. it's it's lifting and shifting, right? Yeah, it's lifting um, and shifting. Now. Just, I think the thing that we probably didn't mention is that some lifting and shifting is easier than others. So when it's x86 virtualized architecture stuff and it's running in VMware, say, that sort of stuff is really easy. Like there are migration wizards these days that will just lift up your VMDK files, your VM machines yeah. effectively, and then import them into the cloud. That stuff yeah, v is really easy. VM VMware even has services if you're running actual VMware on-premise or in your hosts. VMware actually has services where, as a service, they will migrate your VM into the cloud of your choice. Mm. And in fact, I know on Azure and AWS, I don't know that I'd need to check on GCP, but there's a VMware service that you can get running on their compute. So it's almost seamless. The application just, it, it stands up, notifies, tears down, DNS updates, and you're running in the cloud. Yep. Yeah, really, really easy. So it's, you know, if you just wanted to go like for like and literally just run your VMware VMs in AWS and Azure, you can actually do that. But let's, um, talk, but, let's talk about those caveats. So, <laughs> yeah. So the caveats effectively are the ones which are 
bare metal. So if even X86 equipment, which is, you know, literally hosted on the machine itself. So you're not running a VM. It's just the bare metal, that sort of stuff. That can be a bit more tricky because you have to somehow abstract that. What, what's running the applications themselves that are running on the VM, sorry, the, the host itself, and then migrate them over. So there's a little, it's a little bit finicky. Oftentimes that often involves actually just standing up a new VM in the cloud, uh, say a new yeah. EC2 instance in AWS and then sort of doing a copy of the data and the applications over. So sometimes things break in that, that migration. So it's not, it's not a true lift and shift. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little, it's a lift shift and a bit of a tinker a bit, but the real hard ones I think come when it's sort of non x86 native stuff. Yeah. So we're talking about the IBM power architecture here. We're talking about the Spark architecture, you know, non yeah. non classic architecture stuff, you know, the, the stuff from mainframe and, and big machines like that. So your mileage will always vary. And so that yeah. probably when you're talking about a lift and shift, the the ones which are not classic X86, uh, it's possible that those will not fall into the lift and shift category. Yeah. Now we do need to highlight there, and and so Alistair and I talk a lot about Google and AWS and Microsoft because they are the big three players in this. But we do need to highlight that there are managed services and there are smaller clouds like IBM SoftLayer, which is now cloud managed services, that can do these non-standard hosted AIX or they don't do Spark, but they they do the but. So the, you need to to Alistair's point, your mileage may change based on where you go, but understand that there, there are options for you out there as, as a lift and ship, lift and shift process. Yeah. So for example, if you're running IBM power architecture on an AIX Unix environment, that that's really going to be a tough, it's hard. Yeah. It's a tough migration into the cloud. So yeah. what do you do, right? You've got two main options, really. Do you, A, decide to refactor your applications. So basically create new applications or, or make, make significant changes into whatever they are and then put them in the cloud. Or do you, you know, buy into a new cloud which supports, like Sean said, the, yeah. the IBM data center, they'll have hosted AIX on power. Yeah. So you could just lift and shift. When that, that's the easy option but it's also potentially the longer term, more expensive option, or, yeah. or it will hold you into a life cycle of further technical debt. It, so it, yes. there's a pros and cons for both. I'm not saying that, and again, going back to what we said in our technical debt episode, technical debt isn't always the wrong thing. It's a dirty yeah. word or a dirty phrase, but it's not always the wrong thing to do. And neither is lift and shift, right? Okay, That's so right. just want right. to make that clear. All right, so I think I'll close out lift and shift or rehost as AWS call it by saying that it is worthy of note that applications are easier to optimize or re-architect once they're already running in the cloud. There are methodologies and wizards and things like that you can do and you can say, hey, I've moved this from VMware. Now it's in an EC2 instance, for example, in AWS. And now all I need to do is plug this here, that, here and there yeah. And it will migrate that into more of a cloud native application. So, well, and, and and sometimes you can solve some of your technical debt, like patching operating systems, uh, consolidating licensing. That so there are there are technical debt problems that you can solve 
with rehosting. But again, there, there are challenges with it because oftentimes what you find is the reason you haven't patched is because an application can't live with the patch. And yeah. you may find that you can't run the operating system. Like if, I, I have been in an organization where one of their servers was running Windows 95. Now, anybody that knows anything about IT will know that Windows 95 is not a server operating system. They had to run it on a special instance of VMware to be able to run it. And when they tried to rehost it onto an EC2 instance in AWS, the whole thing fell over because the drivers weren't supported in the operating system. The operating system fell over. So there, there are, you know, it, oftentimes from a business perspective, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah this is just too complicated. Just rehost everything in the cloud and uh, understand that sometimes it's difficult. Mm, mm, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. And this is a kind of, I guess, a middle ground from the yeah. rehosting one. So this is called replatform. So this is where you make a few cloud optimizations. You don't go whole hog cloud native, but you make a few optimizations to achieve a tangible benefit. But the core architecture of the application does not change. Now, I'll give you an example of this, and one that I always go back to because it's easily relatable. Sorry, that's a bad pun, which is to reduce the amount of time spent managing database instances by migrating to a database as a service platform. So again, I, I'm not picking on Amazon. I, I like all three big cloud providers, but like, let's just say Amazon's relational database service RDS is a drop-in replacement for you know the most common uh, database types so or a postgres sql server all that so they're basically what they're doing amazon are doing under the hood is that they're running an instance of oracle or sql server or whatever for you right yeah but it's a black box. managed managed it's completely managed you don't need to worry patched. about that patch patch it's highly available security. Yeah, yep. highly available, has operational monitoring, and even provides you SLAs out of the box. Yeah. Now, what you'll see is if you hosted your own EC2 or virtual machine in the cloud and installed SQL Server, say, on it, versus the cost of running RDS with SQL Server, you will see that the cost of running RDS is higher than running that EC2. And so when you, if you, just took that at face value, what you're thinking there is, hey, why would I ever buy this RDS, which is more that's expensive right. than running my own SQL server? But that's where the whole point of the cloud comes into its own. And you're missing the point of cloud if you can't, if you don't get that distinction. What you're paying the money for is for Amazon or or Google or whatever to look after that instance yeah. for you and to do all that heavy lifting. So basically that could be a full-time person's job, indexing those databases, patching those databases, doing all of that good stuff. You're basically just taking that whole time away and really focusing it on just having a, a reliable database. So it's a really and, good- And this um, is, there, there's an important point here, right? And that's, so there's a bunch of additional cloud services that you get that you don't have from one that you manage yourself. And we're going to touch on that a little bit when we get to cloud architecture. But if you take advantage of those services, things like, you know, read replicas and being able to scale the data instance out without having to re-architect how your database is consumed. So out of the box, just by enabling these identity access management services over the top of your database and how the database works, there are things that you get out of the box. All you have to do is enable those services for the database. And, and by the way, it works for hosted 
platforms as, as a service, whether you, you know, you're running Microsoft Windows as a service in Azure, or you're looking at a Linux, a managed Linux instance, the same exact thing becomes true is, is that you get additional services that are part of the reason that you're paying additional money. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. So the next one is refactor or re-architect. And this one really talks to how you could reimagine how the application is architected and developed using cloud native features. This is really going into that cloud native aspect of, of things. So yeah, taking a step back from what you've got right now and, and, and redefine what you've got and say, Hey, is this suitable for a consumption model, which suits the cloud? And like you said, Sean, you know, obviously it's a scale up, scale down on yep. consumption, consumption pot paid model. So things vary just in terms of architecture, just to suit that in and of itself. So, so yeah, so when you're re-architecting, it's driven a strong, uh, by a strong business need to add features, scale or performance that would other by, otherwise be difficult to achieve in the application's existing environment. So, you know, you've got a monolithic application, that one won't scale in the same way as a cloud native application. If you think about containers and how orchestrated containers, applications that run inside containers, that, that lends itself very well into a cloud native environment. Yep. So if you're, if you have a monolithic application that won't scale, that sits yep. there and it needs compute and it will just consume and consume and consume. Whereas you can have containers that spun up and spun down on demand as per your application or your clients require your customers. So if they're going to a website, you're, you're, you're serving up a website, for example, yeah. and it's an e-commerce website or something like that, you know, it, it could be running, you know, when it's idle on one or two containers. And then you know, right. when you That's get right. to the point where, you know, you've got 5,000 customers it could, it could require you know, 25 or 30 containers or something like that. And it could just scale automatically. That well, might and this refactoring. Well, and, and so the, one of the examples I like to use is, is that if we look back to some of the applications that Alistair, I know you and I both had to deal with in the early noughties and in the nineties, where there were actual SQL calls to SQL databases. So we had a web interface, oftentimes that was used internally within the company. And in that web interface, we had to fill out, you know, a blank, or we had to, you know, we clicked on a button and it showed us a table. And those were actual raw SQL queries directly to the backend SQL database. And if it was not done correctly, which is cross-site scripting attacks set aside, if it was not done correctly, that web application could actually lock up the database in the back so that nobody else could access it or do anything. Yeah. Or more worse than that, two people accessing the same application, trying to update the same field within the database would fall everything apart. There are still today organizations that are using applications that are architected this way and decoupling those so that the front end uses, you know, decoupled API architecture to be able mm -hmm. to update those databases on the back end side means that the databases can scale and can flex differently without impacting the front end and the front end can, can spin up additional in instances the way Alistair was describing and be able to serve your customers more yeah. fluidly. Yeah, so you, it's clear to see the advantages of this model, and that is, I would generally say, as a, a as a trend. It's you know, when you've all heard of DevOps, you've all heard of that. This is the way that the industry, generally speaking, is going. However, it is not to say that it's not the it's not the only method, 
and it is probably one of the more expensive ways. So when you're doing it right, yeah. and it's quite complicated and it is quite expensive. So if, <clears throat> bear in mind that you know you will spend more money than your classic, you know, monolithic. Here's a here's a database server, here's yeah. a, a web server, and here's an application server. Boom, bang, boom, that's it, done. Yeah. It's not going to be as cheap as doing that. And okay? I'm gonna put I'm gonna put my enterprise architect hat on for a second there, Alistair. I'm, actually have a fedora off and putting this big egghead hat on yeah so one of the from a business perspective one of the things you need to look at is is that what applications bring you the best business value where are you the applications that you have where are you getting the most value from and that if they transformed and you could do them better you would get the most value for the business. And those are the ones that make sense to do cloud native transformation. If you have your internal workforce management tool is this, you know, massively tightly coupled with your phone system and your call management system and everything else. And it's going to be massively expensive for you to move to a cloud native solution for that. That might not be a good fit if you don't do much call center or workforce management. So, you know, when you begin doing the assessment of lift and shift, replatform, refactor, or repurchase, which is what we're going to talk about in a second, that's one of the questions. How much business value can I get out if I do this? And does that make it worth it? Indeed. So let's talk repurchase. Repurchase, yes. So so basically going again to a classic model of software licensing, I think is probably where I would start with this. So Perpetual licensing, or at least annual or biannual licensing, is the classic approach to licensing software, right? When when we're when dealing with enterprise software. So enterprise software can be everything from like the applications you run on your desktop all the way through to stuff that sits in the back end, like um, ESBs, you know, the enterprise service buses. Oracle and database. Oracle, yeah. the, you know, that whole sort of stuff. So let's just think about it as the stuff that sits on servers for this 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 perspective and and so basically again having perpetual or annual licensing like that really doesn't fit well with a cloud consumption model an on-demand style model so think about having an analysis x piece of work on what you're about to shift into the cloud and look at the type of applications that they are and whether the license that they, you have on them right now sits well with the target approach so it's probably more likely that they're, they're you, you you're looking at for a software as a service type model license yep. which is that changing it probably from an opex cost into an uh, sorry a, a capex cost into an opex cost so i'll take an example where you're moving a customer relationship management system a classic crm say you're moving that to something like salesforce.com everybody's got an idea of what salesforce.com is it's a web page you go to it and you just yeah. pay a, you pay a, a monthly bill for the consumption of that, or an HR system like Workday to a content management system or something like that. You know that that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. This that, this is exactly right. And where we see this really playing out is in the procurement side. So you're going to do you know as we move to the cloud, you're going to to have negotiation around licenses. Oftentimes, you can have a discussion with your vendor and say, Hey, we're moving to the cloud. And they have a different license structure for the cloud. SaaS is a perfect example. So with SaaS via 4, they're actually coming out with cloud consumption licensing. Or if you're moving to Oracle 
and you want you're moving your Oracle database and you want to move into the cloud, you may have to restructure the way that you do licensing to optimize it for use on the cloud. And so those those are going to have to be taken in, into account in the projects and how you do this. And by the way, I have seen a scenario where licensing wise and perpetual licensing is the way Alistair's talking about it. It made better sense to go lift and shift of something into the cloud for licensing purposes because the licensing was so good than it was to begin consuming the same exact service yeah. uh, as a service from the vendor. That's right. So if you if you got a if you got a perpetual license, see that you bought way back when, and it's still giving you enough benefit in the current day. Right, that you're not having to update that piece of software or whatever it might be, or you're still licensed for the latest version of the software with that perpetual license agreement, whatever it is, you have to put all of these factors into consideration, right? So yeah, exact. That's a great point, John. Like if you're if you're moving, just you might want to just put in a lift and shift rather than go cloud native, even though when you look at it on paper, you know it makes sense to go cloud native with this application because it would give you X, Y, and Z benefits, and yet it would be cheaper. But then if you actually look at the cost of the licensing, right at the end of the whole thing, you go, yep. hold on a minute. But if I do it this way, cloud native, it's going to cost this plus this plus this plus this plus this, but we're already paying like this on the licensing cost, and that's less, even with you know, lift and shift into the cloud. So that's a very good point and certainly something yeah. that can be overlooked or, or can be forgotten about until the very last minute. So definitely worth thinking about there. Right, okay, so we'll quickly move on to the last two. Now, these won't take very long. Yeah. Retire and retain is the last two. So retire is basically the, 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 pretty much what it says on the tin. So if you think about it, you know, retiring applications that are no longer needed. Sometimes when people get caught up into migrations into the cloud, it's like a it's like a, a big oh we must migrate all the things to the cloud and sometimes it's actually better to take a step back and say hey should we just switch this off you yeah. know do we actually yeah. need this is there two these two people in the back room that use this one application you know can we not just shift them onto something else yeah. Or, yeah. or 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 do they actually have to use this so spending the the necessary you know, Q&A time to go around the organization saying, hey, who's actually using this? And if you yeah. don't get any re responses back, eventually you can go to that point where you just switch it off. And if still nobody complains, then that's the case where you probably don't need to migrate it. And that's actually, that's actually a really good point. I'm seeing a lot of enterprises that are now starting to get to the point where they're like, the data hasn't changed in this application. We can't see anybody accessing it. We're going to turn it off and see if anybody raises a ticket. So there are some organizations out there that are part of their project plan is, we believe this thing should be retired. We're going to turn it off and see if anybody complains. If somebody complains, then we'll take a look at fixing it or mm. helping them get off of it. And in the meantime, what we'll do is we'll archive it so that if, you know, there's a caveat to this. There are certain business processes and applications that only run once a quarter or even once a year. Yeah. If the application is not documented, my suggestion would be is that if you don't have operational logs that go back far enough, you know, to see if somebody's been accessing the system that you might want to run for 3 months through quarter end before mm. you decide that no because I have seen some applications yeah. that literally were only used once a quarter. Yeah, definitely. And then the final one is retain. And and again, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's basically to keep the applications that are critical for the business 
but that require that major refactoring before they can be migrated. So basically, you're not going to do any migration in this round of migrations. You're just basically yeah. going to say, hey, that application, I'm going to revisit that later. And, you know, maybe at yeah. that point in time, it's more it's more critical to migrate. But right now, we'll leave it in the data center or whatever it is. We'll yeah. just leave it alone. Well, and, and there are some, you know, there are some applications in some businesses, like I can think the power grid management system or the ambulance and police and fire notification systems that may never be migrated to the cloud because their service level agreements, their requirements for availability and uptime are going to be so great that to do it in the cloud would be too expensive to ever justify moving it to the cloud. So understand that retain is always on the table. It just needs to be validated and it needs you need to be making the decision for the right reasons. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. All right. So, so that, that finishes off the seven migration transformation into the cloud approach options, Sean. What are we going to talk about next? Well, so we need to go into this. I want to dive a little bit into this idea that you're not ever going to do one of those seven transformations for your entire IT. The reality is, is that what you're going to have is a hybrid. You're going to on a application by application, server by server. And by the way, I know a time when we had application servers, Novell application servers, that's how far back that oh, goes. Oh, you're showing your age now. Oh my God. <laughs> Where you would have several applications installed on a single Novell server. There are still organizations that do that. They install multiple applications that have nothing to do with each other onto a, the same server. Now, because we've virtualized, we can put them in their own virtual operating system, but there are still even within some organizations where they put multiple applications into a single virtual machine. The migration to cloud might be the time to separate those applications onto their own dedicated virtual machine, into their own dedicated container, potentially putting them in different data, data centers or regions for availability purposes. So the reality is, is that most of these cloud migration transformations are going to be hybrid. It's going to be a mix of all seven of the approaches. And you really need to be looking at it with this idea of a front-end view a back-end view, which includes the data processes, the business processes, and then a data view. And so each one of those are going to be kind of viewed and approached slightly differently. A front-end application is something that either your customers or your employees use to regularly access back-end business processes to do things. And the requirements for it are going to be significantly different than the back-end application services. And the data services, what you're going to find is, is data is becoming the new gold within businesses. The value of data is now becoming massively important. And that means that applications that you've never had accessing your data are now going to need to have access to that data. And so whereas before with a data warehouse, we could say we could archive stuff off. And when somebody needs, I've actually been in a data center where if somebody needed something, this big, big tape machine with this robotic arm would come and grab the tape you needed and would load the tape into the machine and would pull the data that you needed off of it. But the reality is, is that nowadays with that data being that new gold, from a data analytics perspective, you may need to have that data available all the time in a way that has never been needed before. So looking at those front end, back end, and how the business processes in the organization work will help to inform which of those seven migration options works best 
for that for that thing. And the the if you get to a point where you're like, well, we've got this front end application that has a back end application and has data, and they have to be loaded onto the same server because that's the only way they'll work. That right there needs to be a red flag that you have a tightly coupled application that it it needs to be assessed for transforming for cloud native because mm. what it means is is that if you're scaling a front end application for thousands of customers and that application the server has to be sized to run a SQL server on it i know alistair you've seen that where the front end mm -hmm. application had a SQL server running on the application absolutely many times mm -hmm. that that could get massively expensive very yeah. very quickly and it can also get very unreliable very quickly. And in fact, you know, I would dare say the amount of organizations that have these tightly coupled applications already running, uh, I bet you, you know, the statistics aren't good about reliability. You know, I'd probably just have to ask, you know, clients uh, to say, hey, have you got any of these older applications? And they're running SQL Server plus the front end, plus, yeah. you know, their data warehouse well, kind of stuff what are they all tightly coupled and the answer yeah. if the answer is yes and I would, the next question is how reliable is that and the answer yeah. is almost always not very it crashes a lot or it's slow yeah. or it's you know something's unreliable we had to i remember back in the day we had to do all kinds of weird things with load balancers and stickiness and stuff to make these applications appear more available than they really were in mm. some kind, but but it was always massively expensive. And so those applications become, if they're very valuable to the business, those are good candidates to look at transforming into cloud native. Yeah, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors back in the day, wasn't there? And, um, and I'm, I say back in the day, but the reality is that I don't th even think that back in the day was that long ago, really. It's no, only no. taken until the advent of the, you know, the rich advent of containerization or microservice architecture that we've actually seen a transformation to, yeah. you know, highly de decoupled applications, which are much more reliable. Well, and we're still seeing very, very many enterprises still running very tightly coupled applications. I mean, the banking system is a perfect example. The number of backend systems that are still running in very tightly coupled manners for banking are are huge. So, which gets us into this, this next topic, which is I think is kind of important, and that's how these applications consume and utilize data. Because the reality is, is that all these applications have some kind of data needs. Even if you're just talking about a website with a CMS, the CMS has a database, there's data associated with it, you have to do it and how those applications consume data. If we go back to the late 90s and early 2000s, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to I'm going to caveat it with the fact that it's still happening today. If we look at the the banking systems or the the stock investment trading systems, there because there were so many people doing it at such a high frequency, they would basically record everything that happened, move their entire system to their disaster recovery system and at night run batch processing of all of that data that happened during the day. So for these very high volume transactional databases, we're looking at this batch processing, which could be daily, could be weekly. I have actually seen a monthly batch process for something. And so a lot of legacy applications that are either tightly coupled or that are very, very high transaction tend to consume data and batch processing. 
which by the way is is very cheap on cloud but doesn't provide a whole lot of additional business value on cloud and so we're starting to see requirements to go near real real time or even real time on cloud for data consumption and that oftentimes means that we have to refactor or re-architect the applications it does yeah yeah i mean also i mean a lot of batch queues for whatever reason you know when the logic was programmed back in whenever the application was coded it might, might be a new application might be an old application but whenever the there are set, there are always set parameters around the batch so yeah. for example you know an application programmer might have said okay well the the batch size can only have you know a hundred thousand entities and then for some yeah. reason there's an anomaly so if it's a bank you know some somehow there's some regulation thing that made made an update on every account or something like that so then that hundred thousand all of a sudden for this one-off occasion has just turned into you know it failed five yeah. million it's failed and so when you know especially things like nightly batches and you come in in the morning and your night batch has failed then you're a race against the clock to remedy that batch and then you're also looking at you know compute costs in the in in as opposed to nighttime and all of that sort of stuff. So batch processing had even even since its inception, you know, we're going back to the 60s and the 50s here, right? That batch yeah. processing has been around for a very long time. Batch processing processing has always been fraught with known issues. It's not a, a, a trouble-free solution. It is probably an easy concept to grasp, but it's also, you know, not necessarily the easiest so easiest to work with there's the, there are problems in that area so things like this event streaming which i think you're going to call and talk about is, yeah. is is kind of the the next the next phase so yeah what what is event streaming for for the listener well so when we're talking about event streaming what so let's let's draw a little bit of a picture the way that most applications up until about five years were developed is, is that you did something on an application and it wrote to a database and then some other business process or application read from that database and did something with it. With event streaming, when you do something with an application, that data associated with it, whether it be a field you filled out, whether it be an action that you took, is streamed directly to the other business application that needs to do something with it. Now, some some of the people uh, might that listen to us might say, "Well, you know, email doesn't write to a database." Well, you're right, but a, a, an email goes to an email server where it's the email is stored and then it's forwarded on as a business process application. An event stream is. You know, I type in, a, a, it's closer to what an SMS or a text message is. I put the text message in my phone and say, go, and it just automatically goes to the, the, the receiver of that directly in, you know, like WhatsApp or Kick or something like that. Event streaming is the same way. We get applications that we have data that we're feeding into, and we know we have to do business processing with them. And we may send that data to a database eventually, but we're also sending it to something that can consume it on the fly and utilize that event as it goes forward. It allows us to not be dependent on locking a database. It, it We can do macro, micro batch processing. So we can event stream, event stream, event stream. And every five minutes we run a little tiny batch process where we write it to 
a data warehouse so that we can get data analytics from it. Data analytics we're not going to be consuming on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, but the application processing of an ERP system, we might need to do that. And that's really the direction that we're starting to see uh, uh, data consumption going. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's our, that's our four main models of data consumption. And obviously, that's kind of going from oldest to newest in a way. So batch being the, the oldest, then near real time and real time are kind of, I guess, on par. Close. Yeah. And then and then we've got event streaming, which is a more modern. Well, and, and, and let's, you know, similar to the other things that Alistair and I say, there are times and reasons why you might still do batch processing. Asynchronous writes to or log shipping writes to a redundant database in another region on cloud may be done in a batch process manner. And that might make sense if your if your recovery time for or your recovery point for a data set is only once a day. Like you could lose 24 hours worth of data and it's no big deal. You might once a day write changes to your database to a backup database at a at a in another region so that if the current region falls over, you still have all that data. So there are still valid cloud native reasons to use batch processing, but it's using it where it makes best sense and where you get the most value out of. Absolutely. Yeah, great point. Okay, so the final sort of topics that we're going to talk about here really is cloud architecture and cloud native. And then the final one is on just a brief talk about cloud, marketplace. um, cloud marketplaces. So, yeah. Sean, uh, when we're talking about cloud architectures and cloud native, what what is that? What does it really mean to be cloud native? I think we have covered this on previous podcasts, but maybe just a quick summary for the listener, just to see yeah. what what is what is cloud native because that's bounded yeah, a lot. I, yeah, it it does get bounded around a lot, and I don't want to scare anybody off by this part of the talk. And fast forward, we're not going to dive into architecture. What what I'm referring to here, and when we start talking about cloud architecture and cloud native, is really so that we understand the 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 terminology of what we're trying to get. And what we're trying to get is, is that cloud native means it utilizes cloud services and cloud capability to provide the best value for your business. And that means we reduce the cost when necessary. We take advantage of the services that enhance recoverability, that we take advantage of the service level agreements that are built into it, that we use the functions and features properly. So if we have a database that regionally is automatically backed up to other regions that we utilize that. If I have, I've gone in and done a cloud audit of a business before and they had paid for the service, but they hadn't ticked the box in the service to say replicate to another region. And they had had three outages where the re, they had lost the region and they didn't have a backup of the database because they hadn't ticked that box. Being cloud native means taking advantage of those services and functions. And we're going to talk on cloud marketplace here in a second, but it means that includes leveraging third-party offerings. So third-party configurations, third-party builds that are can be purchased through the marketplace and consumed as a, as a service or as a consumption-based pricing structure so that you optimize for your business. Because the reality is, if you're a dairy owner, if you're you know a convenience store owner and you're closed at night, you shouldn't be paying for your IT services to be running in the cloud at night. All of your services should shut themselves down and they should turn themselves on five minutes before you come into the office. And by the way, every single cloud vendor out there has that for free. 
They have services for free that will turn your stuff off and turn your stuff back on. And if you utilize them, that's what being cloud native is about. So, so I, I really want to highlight this. It's leveraging these cloud services, whether they be security services, operational services. Alistair, talk a little, a little bit about the security offerings that most of the cloud vendors offer that people don't take advantage of. Oh, goodness. Where to start? I mean, there's, there is a massive amount of security services now provided by all of the cloud vendors. And it's, I think, I think probably the reason that they're not always adopted is because of a number of things. One being that say you started your journey into cloud five years ago, and over that last five years, so many new services have have actually been incorporated and put into either a free tier or a very low cost tier. But yeah. you know, it's not unless you stay at current with the platform, you're not necessarily going to be aware of them. So there's the yeah. lack of awareness for starters. Secondly, it's the 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 lack of time, I guess. Like sometimes it's a bit difficult. And then thirdly, obviously it's complexity to actually incorporate these services into some so so if you've got some sort of not legacy application. I'm a, I'm a, I don't want to really use that term, but an application that you know is a bit finicky that needs some sort of handholding. So when you switch on things like even simple things like firewall rules, and all of a sudden the whole application just falls at its feet, that's the sort of stuff where you you know you might be a bit a bit scared, I guess, of implementing these new security technologies. But really, you know, from I guess from all the way up, right? So there are things like you know your classic sort of firewall services. And we can come on to that and again in the marketplace in a moment, but there are also things like guardrails, for example, which are a set of that basically say, here's best practice around security for all sorts of things, you know, whether yeah. it's the accounts that you log into your cloud account with, locking them down so the appropriate people have access to them, using two-factor authentication, using, you know, IAM and, and all that sort of stuff, all the way through. So there's so many different ways what about what about audit audits automatic audits of yep. systems to show yep. you where you need like cloud trail stuff and so forth oh, yeah. yeah yeah and then of course there's the more sort of layer seven type services such as wafs so web application firewalls the basic waf service is actually built in and up until fairly recently i can't recall exactly how recently that was switched off by default so it's a free built-in service which protects web applications and it's pretty innocuous it doesn't really interrupt too many web services that i've seen so if if it's running over port 18 443 and it's not using web sockets there's a good chance that the WAF's just going to you know take care of a good majority of the standard types of attacks coming against your your web application well, and i think so on why wouldn't on aws you? yeah on aws I, I believe the dos service is if you have a WAF, the DOS service is automatically free, but it is turned off by that's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it I think it's switched on now. Or maybe I'm is wrong. It? Okay. But it, but it's as a recent thing. So I might be getting confused with the different cloud vendors. I'd have to look it up. But oh and understand that some of them like Microsoft Security Essentials now is taking streams from other cloud vendors. So if you have a multi-cloud environment where you have some stuff deployed on AWS or some stuff deployed in GCP and, and you're let's say you're using the security platform inside Microsoft, 
you can begin consolidating some of that security stuff into your Microsoft. There are similar services from the marketplace that we'll talk about in marketplace in a second, but there's similar services that you could have deployed on AWS and consume security services from the other vendors as well. And, and all of these things add and enhance cloud native in a way that gives, allows you to take advantage of what you're, so remember how Alistair and I were talking about it's more expensive. It's more expensive because these services are there. So the, the fact that a WAF, you know, just sits in front of your web application, your client facing web application, if you had to build that and run that on your own premise, that would be in a cost for you. That's where that cost difference comes from, these, these enhancements and services that sit on top of everything. And if you turn them off or you don't realize that they're there and don't turn them on, then you're leaving all of that value for your business in mm. being cloud native. Yeah. So there's actually a whole bunch of like things like control tower and so forth that you can look through, which show you best practice. So if you're not familiar with all of these things, you can actually go into there and they will give you advice on what you haven't switched on, for example, and say, hey, if you switch this on, this is the implication of switching it on, but this is also what it does for you. And you know, there's just a massive big swathe of really, really good tools on all of the cloud platforms out there to secure your network. So yeah, if, if you haven't familiarized yourself with what those are, even if you're not a security expert or work in a security field, I think it's definitely worthwhile being aware of it, especially in this day and age. If you have anything to do with applications at all, like so delivering applications, developing applications, operational aspects of applications, security, all of that sort of stuff, any sort of involvement in the application lifecycle, I think you owe it to yourself to be aware of the security yeah. of an application. And the best way you can do that is if it's in the cloud, look at the the things like, you know, the, 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 the best practice guides that they have, because they've got, they've got some really good guides out there and white papers and so forth. And that, so from a cloud native development perspective, the, the security features is only one arm of it. The, mm. the operational features, the disaster recovery, business continuity plan features that are inherently built into cloud services. Oftentimes these are turned off by default. And so, understanding what they are and turning them on and taking advantage of them, taking advantage of automatic replication to other regions. I remember a couple, it was a couple of years back, there was an outage on the East coast of the United States for AWS. An entire region went down and every application that was deployed in that region became unavailable. And Netflix, even in that region, wasn't impacted. Netflix from the beginning has built their service on this idea that they could sustain a failure anywhere in their AWS deployment and their services would still be available. And so they've gone in and figured out which services and what applications and, and which out-of-the-box things they can get from AWS and they take advantage of those because it's part of the service that you're getting. And that's, that's one of the inherent parts of cloud native. So it's mm -hmm. not just cost effectiveness so that we spend stuff down and spend stuff back up when we need it, but it's also taking advantage of those those services that exist there on the cloud, as opposed to either having to manually build something yourself, which brings us to that last little topic. Oh, sorry, just I thought of something there just before we move on to that. Just yeah. as a as a point of reference, if you are looking for, like I mentioned, white papers and so forth, AWS and Microsoft do something very similar, but it, AWS do the well-architected framework, and that that's a 
it's a sort of interactive thing you can go into it's a guide and you can tick the boxes one by one as a sort of checklist as you've gone along so it's based on six pillars and and kind of like you were saying sean security is just one part of it well it is you know that's one pillar of the six so in total those six pillars are operation i've just googled it to remind myself of what they were they were operational excellence pillar the security pillar the reliability pillar performance efficiency cost optimization and sustainability so if you think about all of those six things really those are the benefits that you get from going to the cloud right and those those that well-architected framework will educate you to be able to switch on those things that you know by default aren't switched on so yeah i just thought that would be uh, well gcp gcp has it microsoft what i'll do is in the podcast notes just if you're listening, I'll go ahead and put links to the three of them, one from each cloud. But Alistair's absolutely right. By the way, that's a good, if you don't have a cloud center of excellence or you don't have cloud architects on staff, that's a good starting place for you in your cloud journey. Now, you might be fully in the cloud already. Using those guides might help you transform what you have in the cloud to optimize it. Because a lot of organizations are now having serious discussions about moving back into hosted data centers or even on-prem because the costs of their cloud consumption was greater than what they planned for. Mm. And those pillars will help you really take advantage of the services that are on the cloud. Yeah. All right. Okay. Sorry. I digress. Let's move on to marketplace. And yeah. So let's touch on marketplace for a second. So every single one of the cloud vendors now have a cloud marketplace. It's worth if you're a subscriber to a cloud service going and taking a look at the marketplace, because oftentimes applications you are running, the vendor has built a borderline managed where they patch it, they maintain it, they keep it up and running marketplace offering that you can subscribe to and pay on a monthly basis. And you can move all of your configurations over to and begin consuming and running it. Firewall is a perfect example. If you're currently using Fortinet firewalls, you can deploy Fortinet firewalls directly from the marketplace. And and I believe the last time I checked, which was over five years ago, so this may have changed, so don't hold me to it. But Fortinet actually allowed you to bring your licenses over from your on-premise firewalls into the cloud-deployed marketplace firewalls. So these marketplaces, there are literally thousands of offerings. They're not just, you know, on the Microsoft marketplace, it's not just Microsoft offerings. There are third-party vendors that have built SaaS offerings that are pre-built deployable services and applications that you can deploy into your virtual private data center that's inside Microsoft into projects in GCP. And oftentimes they can accelerate your transformation on the cloud. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's, it's definitely worth a look into the marketplaces. You know, there is also, it's kind of like, it's, it's analogous, I guess, to like the app store on your phone, right? You can go in there, and there's just there's a massive swathe of applications and services that you can purchase and consume on a short-term basis, on a long-term basis, yeah. whatever you like. It's all a, a consumption-based model. It's also fair to say that there is a community marketplace out there. So these are still available. They're not they're not necessarily free. Some of them are on a free tier, but it's a community-run marketplace on the official marketplace. Not that I have any major horror stories from these community instances. It's just to make you aware of the fact that 
I guess, again, when I'm putting my security hat on, there are people out there, and it, and it does make it fairly clear, at least on AWS, which ones are community versus which ones are, you know, fully vetted by AWS all the way down. But it's quite, it's, it's important to, to point out that these community ones are not commercially backed and, and obviously not they supported. Could have, they're not necessarily supported. They don't have a, a necessarily long software lifecycle on them or support no. lifecycle. They might, and they might even be, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying dodgy, but you know, there could be stuff in them that, you know, you're not aware of. So just yeah. exercise caution, I guess, is, is, Absolutely. What's, is what's the best advice on those. I think it's from an architectural perspective, you know, with your organization, I think if, if you had a list of the applications that you're using, going and looking at the marketplace and seeing if you could consume those from that vendor as a service is something that's worth doing because oftentimes that can accelerate your transformation. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've covered, Alistair, we've covered a lot of really good topics in this, this episode. I th- yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we could have, it was funny when Alistair and I were setting this podcast out and, and planning it out, we, we said we could actually do a, an entire podcast on, on any one of these topics, really deep dive on it and see where things go. So if that would sound interesting to you, why don't you reach out to us and, and let us know that you'd like to hear a podcast specifically on, you know, the, the seven approaches or, you know, cloud native builds or... I don't think we could do one on marketplaces, but we could. We might be able to find somebody that we could bring on to talk about marketplaces. But yeah, it, reach out to us and let us know if you'd like us to do a deep dive on one of these. This is about as deep as we had planned to go for the technology whispers, but we'd be willing to go a little bit deeper if it made sense that the people listening to it wanted us to. Yeah, yeah. And, and on that similar topic, you know, we s- s- really have enjoyed your feedback, enjoyed reading your emails and so forth. And and uh, yeah, th- we thank you again for your continued support of the of the uh, of the podcast. So it's really, really been great to, to be to, to hear from from all of you. So if you do want to get in touch with with either Sean or myself, Sean, what's the best way that people can get in touch with you? Oh, it's probably through LinkedIn, but I can be found on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and either LinkedIn or direct email to my Sean.Muller at Servian.com email address. Yeah. So you're Sean, Sean G. Muller on all the social media stuff, aren't you? That. Yes, I am. Excellent. Yeah. And you can get me as well on email at Servian. So it's Alistair, A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R dot Ross at servian.com you can get me on linkedin just search for alistair ross in servian and of course i'm on youtube and various other things search for al's geek lab that's my own little sort of funny it's a thing brilliant where I do... channel it's oh, a brilliant yes. channel if you haven't had a chance to go look at alistair's technology lab youtube videos they're brilliant if you if you're if you're verging on the on the slightly geeky side and you've got and you've got lots of spare time then <laughs> absolutely check it out and if you like anything to do with sort of vintage or retro computing then it's almost definitely up your street but that's uh, that's again a different topic entirely and and of course outside of the the points that we've discussed on the podcast today and whether we want another deep dive if there is other topics that you think that you would like to uh, here discussed on the podcast with Sean and I, please let us also know. And also, if you would like to uh, be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you as well. We've had a, quite a few guests now, and they've all been awesome. 
And so, yeah, please don't be don't be shy about coming up and saying hi. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Everybody's got some great points that, that we could have. Well, and so we we have some additional guests coming up, but Alistair, I have a I'm going to throw something out here, and I didn't I didn't cover this off with you ahead of time, but if oh. you listen to our podcast and you this doesn't go for people that work at Serbian, if you if you listen to our podcast and you meet us at a conference or something and come up to us and tell us, hey, we listen to Technology Whisperer, either to Alistair or myself, we'll buy you a drink. I can't say fairer than that. Hey, we might even give you some official Serbian swag as well. You know, no promises. (laughs) But, you know, if you you see the two bald amigos, you know, you can't miss us. You know what we look like, you know? (laughs) Yeah. then of course you get in touch and we, we will definitely buy you a beer or or your favorite non-alcoholic drink if, if that's what you do. And the last thing I would say is I, from a housekeeping perspective, John, I will not be here next time because I will be in the UK on a on a little trip. I'll be yeah. back, yeah. I think sort of mid-August. So number 13, lucky 13 will yeah. be without yeah. me. So I'm sure it will be awesome. It will be way yeah. better. <laughs> I have I have a couple topics. I'll try not to go too deep technical with them. I'm hoping to bring in a, a, a guest for one of those podcasts. But yeah, so stick around. Check us out next time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Speak to you soon. Cheers.